<laughs> I think George, he's the worst sound man ever. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Surviving Society with Chantel and Tiso. This season's broad theme is reconfiguring whiteness. Welcome to another episode of Surviving Society. We are really excited to be joined by Erin Winter and Aurelian Monden. Hello, guys. Hello. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, one of the reasons why we asked you guys to come on the podcast again is because we did an episode with Aaron at the BSA and it was such a great episode. I think it was one of our longer ones that we did. We were only supposed to do like micro yeah. ones, weren't we? Yeah, yeah. And we just didn't want to stop like talking about whiteness, racism and the far right is something that we do quite a lot on the podcast or you do particularly too. Well, I, I just think right now it's a very... Uh, a convenient time to speak about this kind of stuff. It's people, political parties have been mobilised since 2016 around these issues, so I think it's quite timely, really. Definitely. Mm-hmm. And you've got a book coming out next year, which is titled Reactionary Democracy, How Racism and the Populist Far-Right Became Mainstream. How did they? <laughs> <laughs> Good question. How many words did it take us? To... Yeah, um, well, it's it's really the combination of the work we've been doing together for about five years now. Um, and it's just really bringing all the kind of discussions we've had uh, and the various kind of bits we've worked uh, and try to put them together into a, a broader framework to understand that political moment that, that, you know, um, that we were talking about, this kind of moment after the 2016 elections, whether it's, you know, Brexit or, or Trump, but something that we argue started much earlier, in fact, and something that, you know, was bound to happen eventually. So it's, you know, Trump, Brexit, we tend to see them as surprises, as kind of earthquakes, kind of, you know, almost catastrophic events, while in fact what we argue in the book is that this was very much... Um, part and parcel uh, of, of our politics uh, and that we need a very different approach towards issues of racism, the far right uh, and, and so-called populism if we really want to kind of combat them properly. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things, just to go back historically, we, we're sort of operating under the sort of the idea that for a long period of time, the far right was seen as having been marginalized. And at the same time, this sort of the site of racism. And, of course, this feeds into all the post-race narratives and discourses. And that um, we've watched a period since the 2016 or 2015 in which the, the far right has increasingly become mainstreamed, or its ideas have, um, often under the auspices of populism or the the claim that these that these parties and these movements represent the people. And we can talk more about what who the people are allegedly represent. So we look at the transition from sort of the construction of the far right as the site of racism and the way that opened a space for liberal racisms. And we published on the sort of liberalism, what we call liberal Islamophobia. And we look at the way in which the the notion of the extreme which, again, is not the only side of racism, has allowed for the legitimization of other forms of more coded racism, which, over the past little while, with along with sort of populism, um, with air quotes that are not going to appear on the podcast. <laughs> I do that all the time. Everyone does it all the time. <laughs> I'm, like. sure. <laughs> I'm sure, I'm sure. And those two things have allowed for these once illegitimate ideas, or allegedly illegitimate ideas, to come back into the mainstream and actually embolden of all the far right. Historically, I'm thinking it's how it's always been compartmentalized for me is that racism was Nazism, right? That's the site of where racism is. And in post-1945, we're good, right? So that's your extreme. Yeah. And so anyone who's a neo-Nazi, anyone's walking around with a Nazi symbol or a skinhead who are, they're definitely racist. And yeah. anyone else past that, that's not. And that's how it's kind of conveyed over especially in the media it's more complicated even more recently though and I think we have spoke about this on the podcast before like I think about like Nick Griffin going on Question Time 2008 and even amongst the group I think you're talking about the liberal the the Mm. liberal group that will condone liberal racism their sort of like laughter at him yeah. and unwillingness to take them mm. him seriously sort of I don't know it, it sort of it rings a bit of a moment for me as well like I keep going back to that time when the BNP where they'd made quite a lot of losses he came on question time was embarrassing we all laughed at him and now everything that he was saying Prime Minister sort of says now yeah. 
I think, because you go to the Nazi thing to bring it yeah. back, yeah. in a sense, that's where we believe in the sort of the, the defeat of Nazism and the emergence of the liberal order is where the liberal racism, I think, sort of comes from. Which is also why when people fight the far right, they, they, they often, and this is, I guess, a problem with far right studies, is they seem to be defending liberal democracy more than the targets of racism. Yes. And this is where part of our project comes in. Mm-hmm. But so you use Nazism as an example. Well, in the U.S., it's Jim Crow. It's post-65. Okay. It racism ends. And then you have conversations <laughs> with people in Britain, and it's like, well, the 70s and 80s with the skinheads. Mm-hmm. And so the, the timeline of when this extreme thing ended changes depending who you're talking to, how they're constructing racism, mm-hmm. and how they're imagining, well, often their own racism not being the thing they grew up with. Mm-hmm. But uh, the Nick Griffin thing I think is quite interesting, and I think you have more to say this about this than I do, but um, in a sense, he was laughed at. It allowed the liberal liberals to yeah. say, oh, that's racism, that's bad, but we're going to defeat those bad ideas by airing it. And, and not only is the prime minister saying these kind of things, mm-hmm. but actually now everyone wants to platform Nazis and have conversations mm-hmm. with them under the auspices of, well, we'll air out their bad ideas. Well, their bad ideas are sometimes policy now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what's fascinating in a way is that you can, you can see very early on from Griffin, but even, even earlier on in other countries like France, for example, that the use of these kind of nasty racists um, is, is very much as a deflection as well. So it's, of course, to kind of mock them or to kind of say, oh, look at how bad they are. It, of course, not challenging the own kind of systemic policies we have in place, which are deeply uh, racist and racializing. But also it's, it's a deflection away from other... Cr- points of crisis you know it's no surprise that it happens in the 80s 90s and early 2000s where there's a there's a growing discontent with uh, with the type of politics we have you know with the convergence of center left and center right and you can't really separate them anymore uh, at, at a point where there's you know a rise in abstention um, growing discontentment uh, a rise in back a backlash against welfare state welfare policies and all these kind of things you know and so it's a deflection away from bigger problems in societies whether it's unemployment whether uh, it's uh, it's rise of poverty as I said and and, and today we could even argue that, you know, away from uh, global warming, for example, mm-hmm. or, or, or the climate crisis. And instead, what do we look at? We look at the evil Nazis, mm-hmm. like simplistically, right? So we, we chant in, in, this, in the streets. I mean, I remember my, the first time I voted was in France in 2002. And that's when the Front National, the leader of the Front National, got to the second round of a mm-hmm. presidential election. And I remember going in the street and chanting, you know, F like fascist and like Nazi, you know, Front mm-hmm. National. And um, I felt like an anti-racist back mm-hmm. then. But yeah. I wasn't because I wasn't, I wasn't challenging the system that had brought the Front National to power. The Front National, in fact, wasn't even increasing. What was happening is that the mainstream parties were totally failing to kind of gain votes and, and, and bring people together. And this is where the more difficult conversations are happening, I feel like. I feel like it's harder to have a conversation with racism about, with liberal, well, I don't know. I don't even want, I'm, I'm sort of imagining, like, another group. But certainly among, okay, let me just put it in my own lived experience. Amongst some of my peers that went to university, mainly white and pretty normal, like some of my good friends, like got jobs in the city or whatever, and trying to tell them about this sort of racism that is perhaps inbuilt within their lived experience and sustains their position is more difficult than actually talking Mm. to them about the guy that's called me the N-word on the... Cheap. And it's very much like, I think, it's very pervasive and it makes people feel good about themselves because there's always a worse racist than you, if you want, or there's always someone who is the real racist. And you can really see that in, in the media. I mean, something we, we've, we've started working on more seriously recently, the way what we talk when we talk about euphemization, you know, the fact that in the media, you will only see the word racist when it's for this kind of caricatural racist, you know, mm-hmm. when it's someone throwing a pig's head at a mosque or throwing a swastika <laughs> on a synagogue. But when it's calling Farage a racist, you can see the Guardian running away from that or they'll put it in, you know, scare quotes or, or they will say, as this person has called them a racist because they don't want to touch that. Um, you even saw today, I mean, this is just to say we're recording this at the end of October. So there's, been, there's loads of stuff that's going to have happened. But in the news today, BBC um, was reporting on um, some of the M- some MPs that were writing a letter to, I think, the Prime Minister say about the colonial undertones in the media depictions of Meghan Markle. I mean, I'm not, I don't want to get into a debate about Meghan Markle, but it's more the, the words colonial undertones, what you mean racism. Mm. Like, if you come at it from a different direction, if you want to speak to people about it, the conversation we're having is how has the far right infiltrated the mainstream? So then the question would be, if these things are always in the mainstream, what is mainstream? I think there's several ways of coming, coming at that. Cause it's, I mean, it's a, a complicated 
question. The idea that the mainstream has constructed itself, and we can get into what that is, because that's a lot of what we've been working on <laughs> and debating, and mm-hmm. that they've constructed themselves and their ideas, their more moderate ideas, against this kind of the specter of Nazism, the specter of the National Front, the specter of the Ku Klux Klan in the U.S., etc. It's their ideas that are, are... So you have simultaneously that they provide, as, functionally, the ability to have racist policies that are, can be concealed, allegedly, you know, or can be, can be represented as something other than mm-hmm. that. They also, they, also have that fun, they also have that function is they play a role in the mainstream saying, if you don't vote for us, you're going to get yeah. the, the Nazis or the populists, mm-hmm. you know, but we represent the people and their anti-immigrant views. And again, not calling that racism. So even the even in one hand, it's their ideas getting into the mainstream, but it's also their function in the mainstream as concealment, distraction, deflection from, from a, and legitimization. Okay. So mm-hmm. they can they can legitimize them in a sense. You can say, well, their support base needs to be addressed by us. Mm-hmm. You saw that with the BNP mm-hmm. in the early two thousands, or you can say. They, they are so horrible, except our better ideas about border security, border control, and our island story. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like in the school system. Mm-hmm. So in a sense, even their mainstream doesn't have to be their ideas totally manifesting. It's the function they play and the way those sort of racist ideas mm-hmm. come in. But of course, they can't be racist because they're not far right. Okay. And I think that's something that's, that's key to, to that question of what the mainstream is. And I think it's not so much about, I mean, our work is not so much about uh, defining what the mainstream is, but defining what the mainstream is not over the way the concept of the mainstream is used as well. Mm-hmm. And the kind of false ideas that we have about the mainstream, because most people will, will, you know, what the mainstream is or will think they know what the mainstream is. Mm-hmm. But we found uh, not, just, not just in media discourse, so we work mostly on the discourse of so the media, academics um, and, and politicians. And we found that usually the way the mainstream is understood is in, is in quite quite a special way, like something that actually makes no sense if you think about it for a second, you know. Usually when you think about the mainstream, we think about that as, as something good, something rational, something moderate. Well, it doesn't rational, have to be, right? Yeah. You know, it's not rational in any way, shape or form. It's also massively contingent, right? The, the mainstream today is not the mainstream 10 years ago or 15 years ago. And what is mainstream today? wasn't mainstream not so long ago. I mean, you know, think oh, about so gay marriage, for example, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, it was yeah. totally like gay marriage in, in Ireland, for example, you know, think about 10 years mm-hmm. ago, mm-hmm. like totally different. Brexit, five years ago, no one cared about Brexit. Yeah. Brexit mm-hmm. and nowadays it's mainstream to talk yeah. about it. And so what we're trying to show is that it's A, it's not, it's totally contingent and what is normal today doesn't have to be normal tomorrow. But also when people see it as contingent, they tend to think that we have this kind of unidirectional progress, that things will get better. You know, one day the gender pay gap will be will be filled, you know, and mm-hmm. one day we won't have racism. You just have to be patient. And what we're trying to argue as well is that the contingency doesn't go one way, which means that barriers to progressivism are falling one after the other. Mm-hmm. You know, we need to work for them and people have had to kind of put in a lot of work and we could very much go back to, to reactionary politics, which is what we're looking at and we, we're showing we're trying to show at how these reactionary politics are coming back. So would you would you argue then, like because we have an, a notion it's almost like a like a kind of epistemological notion of of progress going forward yeah. all the time, right? So this is a kind of like almost like the thought of liberalism when we when Francis Fukuyama says like we've won, this is the end so mm-hmm. end of all battles. End of history, yeah. End of history. So we've kind of come to the point where we realise that we still have to fight battles. And maybe that's the shock for people. People are not really, well, haven't been, up until very recently, engaged in politics in the way we've seen in this whole Brexit debate, so polarised and willing to take take positions and defend these positions, i.e. go out and even like try to hurt MPs and stuff like that. Mm. So, or kill them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which, is, uh, which is, compared to five, ten years ago, we didn't really see those things, really, so... Is that where we're at, or to to some extent, I think there's a there's a, there's a rebirth of politics, but at, at the same time, I think there's they're still very much ingrained uh, this idea of of the mainstream, and I don't think mm-hmm. we've shaken we've, we've shaken it quite quite totally. And I think you can see that partly in elite discourse, without going to necessarily violence, but you mm-hmm. can see the way any kind of uh, opposition to the current status quo, which is thought of as the mainstream, the mm-hmm. moderate, the neutral, is in fact very much liberal democracy, which mm-hmm. is 
you know, riddled with problems. You know, I mean, racism was very much developed under liberal uh, auspices, right, as a, as a theory and as an ideology. Uh, when, you know, we were talking about the Second World War before, mm-hmm. you know, it's all nice and well to see the Nazis as, as pure evil, but, you know, the, the Allies were not, not racist mm-hmm. either. They were mm-hmm. very racist. I mean, when I read my students' uh, quotes from Churchill, for example, they're surprised <laughs> because, of course, we see Churchill as this great kind of uh, the guy who freed the world, pretty much, but obviously it wasn't that simple. And so... Apparently th- he hasn't got that much longer left. Danny <laughs> Dorden was signed to us the other week. He's got about another 50 years of praise and then we'll, we'll really get into... <laughs> How racist church was. He says it comes in cycles. The idea of progress, right? Yeah, we just have to wait 15 years. It like how yeah. we demonise um, public figures yeah. eventually. Okay. Yeah, I, don't, I don't think I want to wait 50 years to be <laughs> But, uh, but I think that's quite interesting, again, you know, that we talk about these things. It's like, don't worry, one day we'll acknowledge how racist people oh, were. It's like, why, why don't we actually acknowledge it now, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, it's quite crazy. It and again, it says something about the mainstream and how it's making us shut up about about how much quicker progress should be. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it, it, going, going back to the idea of the construction of the extreme, the Nazis, the Ku Klux Klan, like, one of the things we discuss in the book and is just how main. I mean, these were governments and, and you know, the Klan were both street soldiers for the state but and, and the former Confederacy, but also they were also the bankers and the sheriffs and the mayors and the council councillors. Um, so the very construction of the extreme is contingent upon, and this is, I guess, where the progress also comes in, is that their defeat of this at a overt state level and mainstream level is the marginalization, mm. not realizing that those laws and structures and institutions are still in place. I guess the thing about this is also is that we have the notion of progress is not only the construction of something that lets racism in, but it also would allow liberals to say, stop complaining about inequality, etc., because look how good you have it mm-hmm. or we've done for you. And it's that sort of pat on the back thing. We look at that in, in terms of our um, articulations of the Islamophobia article. We look at the way in which people are clapping themselves on the back saying, oh, well, racism is over. We're, we no longer believe in these biological notions of, uh, of racism, of, of, of superiority or supremacy. But you know what? Islam is a a bad idea. You know, Islam does this. It's, it's so against our liberal values. Mm-hmm. And so what you have, this defense of liberalism, which changes the goalposts, changes the target, and, and allows for an outlet for racism that has, to, to some people, plausible deniability. The very notion of progress is the hammer to which to attack Muslims, mm-hmm. as if it's not racism. Mm-hmm. And I think you can, you can see that incredibly clearly, I mean, the Islamophobia in particular in France, and the way, I mean, it played out in the, in the, last, in the last few weeks, and uh, how a, a Muslim woman wearing a hijab was publicly humiliated in the, in the National Assembly by a, by a Front National supporter, who actually then since has been charged for corruption, which is mm-hmm. quite, uh, quite ironic, right, the guy who's attacking that poor woman who's bringing mm-hmm. children. So she came to bring children to the National Assembly, mm-hmm. right, not all Muslim children, children from a school. She gave her time away to mm-hmm. kind of accompany all these children. She's publicly humiliated. Her son is there. He starts crying. She consoles him. Anyway, what, what's the reaction in France? Debates about the hijab. So it's not debates about racism in, in, in the National Assembly. It's not racism in, in, you know, in French politics. It's debates about the hijab and whether we should ban the hijab for people accompanying children on school trips. And guess what? You know, I mean, that's, that's what happened. They ended up you know, uh, legislating about this uh, very, like yesterday, I think. And I think it's fascinating because it's become so ingrained in, in France because of, because of French history of laicity, secularism, and all these mm. kind of things. But this, this form of racism is completely blanked. And you can tell people about it and you can try and explain it through through what we've talked about through what a lot of people have talked about about cultural racism about all these things and it just doesn't get through because people see it as it's not about race it's about religion and it's so deeply internalized and ingrained that uh, it's it's hard not to be pessimistic about 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 these things and, and about friends to be honest yeah. is this not so uh, obviously speak, i'm speaking anecdotally here but anecdotally, so if i speak to a black person about this they recognize that as mm-hmm. racism right I'm sure, yeah. But for the majority of white people, they don't see that. And it's having that, that conversation with white people. So I'm saying, like, it's not as, like Chantel was trying to say, it's not as obvious as someone saying, that black person over there. That, that what they're doing to Muslims is the same thing they did to black people, the same thing they did to Jews. It's the same, the same thing. So trying to explain to someone that this is, it almost seems like a natural defence of liberalism, this kind of reactionary element to it so I, I, don't, I don't know how we have those conversations to say to someone like to kind of draw out the nuance and try to make it clear to people I think we're at a, I mean, a particularly interesting moment for this because we're at a moment where and I think we all know this from social media and discussions the books on the bestseller list etc this is the moment where where 
racism is being called out from multiple sides, quarters, um, sites. At the same time, we're in the midst of a backlash, which is predicated on denialism and notions of reverse racism. And that reverse racism and reverse sexism, Mm -hmm. because it's really important to to look at the link, because the backlash is fundamentally both anti-feminist and and anti-anti-racist. The backlash is the moment... It occurs in the same moment where there's a there's a demand to a reckoning of these issues, and the backlash is is very well strategically programmed to deny, unseat, to troll, to to f- find ways in which the calling out of racism is a form is worse than racism itself, mm-hmm. and so it's a very it's both a an, a really important moment as an opportunity to do it. With so many amazing writers and activists, yeah. at the same time, it's so under attack. Mm-hmm. That's what I, I, I think. I think we did talk about this on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, and I know I did speak to her about it when I met her. Like Angela Saini, who came on the podcast, I said to her, "I was like, how can we have her book on race science, like these trade books about race and racism? Why am I no longer talking to white people about race? British yeah. natives, like all these books, like as you say, and yeah, as you say, so many amazing activists and organisations coming through." And it sort of seems like we're having conversations about racism that we would like to see. But at the same time, I feel, and I know many other people feel, at risk of... It's difficult. I'm going to say the mainstream nature, but you guys have just said that like the reasons are problematic with the right mainstream nature. The threat, the threat of who I am, what I represent, what I look like, that it feels more real than ever to me. For me, where I think the... I, I don't like to give them props but I kind of look at it is how they've done it culturally they've won that kind of culture war so it makes when you say something that's quite rational it makes you look like an idiot like, it makes you say like I've seen something quite racist I called it out and, and people's reactions I've seen people say well T like you're, you're being too black now I'm like yeah. really or for people's <laughs> lack of response like if I say to some of my say to people that I know particularly people some people that are white about an extreme or overt case of racism that I've experienced, but I almost don't want to comment on it. They're like, oh, yeah. But, like, it isn't everyone, of course, but it is, like, I know what you mean, T, the culture. Like, they don't want to be... They almost don't want to be outraged at it. But but it, not because they're trying to... But it's the names you're calling, like, someone who's quite quite right-wing, someone's decided that he's a snowflake. It's those words, yeah. words like snowflake, words like you cuck, and all those things... It makes you not want to say anything for fear. I think, I mean, yeah, I, I think this kind of culture, cultural victory in a way is, is, is fascinating. And I mm-hmm. think the far right uh, has been much, uh, much more clever uh, at it than, than I think the, <laughs> the, the, the anti-racist yeah. uh, left, uh, the, uh, the feminist left and all of this, where, where I think we were finding smaller battles while the far right kind of like, you know, decided to take a step back after the, the Second World War, after uh, the civil, civil rights era in, in the US and all that, where, where they realized that they wouldn't win. You know, they wouldn't bring back Nazism. They wouldn't bring back kind of biological racism. And so they decided to kind of change things. Of course, they still had the same beliefs. And I mean, in some countries, that was a very much a a carefully planned intellectual project, you know, where these people took, stole away ideas from uh, Antonio Gramsci of hegemony, you know, and they were like, you know what? To win political power, we need to win cultural power first. And we need to make our our vocabulary, our ideas, you know, front and center. So am I going to be talking about biological race and say, you know, you are inferior to me? No, I'm going to be saying, well, you know, we're all different and it's great. Uh, To the point that some of them actually then ended up becoming uh, against um, air quotes, uh, anti-colonialists, mm-hmm. saying like, oh, colonization was terrible, but mostly it was to argue that colonization today is terrible, which is immigrants coming into our country. Mm-hmm. So, you know, oh, but all, all this is extremely powerful because it makes a lot of people feel a lot better about themselves. And particularly, you know, in the liberal center, which still hadn't completely reckoned with its history of racism and its, and its present of racism, it allows us to think like, well, actually, you know, our democracies are great. Let's put borders around Europe to protect mm-hmm. our democracy and our beautiful kind of liberal domain and so on and so forth, and then justifying this kind of, of reaction. And I think I think the the left in general and, and, and the anti-racist left and and, and and feminist left in a way have, have maybe missed that kind of broader battle that the far right kind of uh, went into that was then co-opted by by the liberal right in a way which saw that they could lose a lot uh, if if that uh, struggle wasn't uh, wasn't fought in a way because you know it's not just about anti-racism or feminism it's about classism as well it's about kind of sharing uh, equally what what we have as a as a planet more and more and I think. 
we, that's what we try to do in a way with the book is to look at, we don't just look at racism and we don't just look at classism, but we try to look also at, at where it's kind of coming from in a way. And we try to look at liberalism as well and how liberalism has, has enabled this kind, mm. of, this kind of politics uh, and, and not just enabled them, but fed them at times when it was under threat and prevented us from thinking about different political imaginations beyond what we have at the moment, political imaginations that, that don't put the blame on minorities, whether it's you know, a, a fantasized white working class or, or ethnic minorities or women or, or, or trends today as we see. I mean, you know, it's exactly the same kind of uh, maneuvers really that are, that are put in place. Yeah, I mean, it's, going back to the progress idea, I mean, it's in the sense that we've overcome racism, pat myself on the back, and then the second someone said before, the second someone raises it, they're making race the issue. And that's like the liberal response. Yeah. So this is also part of the discomfort because people have decided racism is over and they've done as a really good job. Yeah, Chantel, yeah. why have you got to make it about race? Or why has it got to be about I, why yeah, that's that's it, what I mean. That's the conversation. It's like the right quoting Martin Luther King Jr. again and again about like the content of my character. You know, I mean, the idea that the colorblind racism has become a weapon of both a, 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 a zone of comfort for liberals and a weapon for the alt-light and the alt-right and the far-right, etc. Because for them, so I guess in some ways, like, you know, li- white liberals will say, like, everyone's equal. The far-right and racist will say, I've lost something. And that becomes the recipe for reverse racism. And so this is where the culture work issue comes in. So the second someone says something about racism, they're asserting some sort of power and trying to push you down. Mm -hmm. And this is where the reverse racism comes in. Mm -hmm. And in a sense, this becomes the kind of part of the white victimization narrative Mm -hmm. that is, I think, partly supported by what we were talking about earlier yeah. about the idea of it's the, the voice of the left behind. So they, find, they construct a sort of white other that becomes evidence of a reversal of the power structure. Mm-hmm. Although at the same time, they're not talking about socioeconomic power. They're mm-hmm. talking about racial power, which is why, despite calling it the white working class, class only matters, I think, as a legitimization of, of white victimization. Mm-hmm. And because I, I don't, I don't think, and I think we both agree with this. I don't think they're making a socialist argument. Yeah, yeah, exactly. National socialists. So this is something that we we talk about a lot on the podcast. We tried to um, a few weeks ago try and do it in a way. Was it last week? Try and do it in a way that it was last week with Rhonda. Thing that you spoke about there, like we've tried to talk about quite a lot on the podcast, and I think it is clear that we're very much about describing the working class as in its multi ethnic, multi racial, like. Mm -hmm existence of what it is in Britain but last week we tried to talk about it in a way we didn't want to necessarily pander to the left behind narrative but we did want to talk about the difference in how we've experienced working class racism that happened to be perpetuated by white people within our lived experience and it's sort of like a tightrope because you don't want to say you don't want to use this group as a way to or I mean I'm saying group this imagined group as a way to legitimate what those in power have done but at the same time there is it's just like it's like walking a tightrope a little bit sometimes you have an ahistorical notion of of spaces right so where I grew up in the east end ahistorically it's conceived as a white working class area the east end of London right but historically we know that's not true but that ahistorical notion rings true and it's so you're socialized with that notion, that concept in your head. So you, when I, even now, even now, at this great age, I still see the Eastern London as a white area, but it's not, it never has been. But that idea, it remains. And even though you have the Cockney Kings and Queens and all these kinds of people, but these people are a minority. They don't reflect the majority or the actual lived experience of people in that area. Like, I, when I say to people, like, post-1945, just after World War II, like, Chinatown was moved from the East End. And most people are like, what, they're trying to... Look, there were loads. But most people, that's been either forgotten. Even people that know it, like, they try to forget it. But, yeah, and it, it very much is a, a political football, um, the, the, the white working class, for all these reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and a completely fantasized thing. And I think it's not just in the East End of London. I think it's pretty much everywhere, you know. And the way we talked about it, of course, it's never the, the, the so-called white working class mm-hmm. that talks about itself, right? Uh, unless it's some kind of cheap 
vox pop that uh, mm. that they love on the media at the moment. But it's it's the elite, you know. It's someone like Farage who clearly is not part of the working <laughs> class, or, or Trump. I mean, <laughs> there's some quotes by Trump where he says, you know, he's going to defend the Rust Belt of the United States, and you know, the Rust Belt is going to rise again. I mean, it's like, well, has he ever been? Or has he even been anywhere that is not super fancy, right? But the, the thing is, I think this this construction is. Is, is fascinating because it, it rests on nothing, and yet we've totally inter- internalized it in our in our public narrative and in our mainstream yeah. narrative. If you look even at you know even if you take the, the tools of the people who are pushing that, and that's what we try to do in a way but with very basic basic quantitative research that any journalist could do. We're not we're not quantitative researchers. We didn't do massive surveys or anything like that. But looking at basic electoral data, you can very quickly show that Brexit and Trump are not working class phenomenon. And exactly, lots of people yeah. have done that. Danny Dorling, Gomin de Bemprava, other people have done it many times, and yet we still have this narrative that this is working class. The Front National was a working class party, apparently, which again is not true. The point is, the working class, if you look at it electorally, mostly doesn't vote because they've switched off for many, many very good reasons mm. because they think no one cares, which is mostly true mm. uh, because mm. because they don't have the time, various other things. Mm. Right? And yet this narrative has, has kind of uh, pervaded. And I, I've been researching that for quite a long time, the, the kind of myth of the working class as a far-right, uh, you know, as a far-right nest of, uh, you know. And and, and I know the figures, and I know it's wrong. And I remember going uh, to, to see my family in France, uh, which is in the middle of France, a very kind of working-class area um, uh, near Saint-Étienne, which is, I'm sure you've, you've never been, when people ask me where I'm from, France, and I say Saint-Étienne, like, oh, yeah, it's near Paris. Like, no, it's not. <laughs> it's not near Paris at all. Uh, you know, it's, uh, it, it used to have weapons. It used to have mines. It all goes down. It's mostly unemployment, the main industry there nowadays, but, uh, and football. But anyway, that's a digression here. Anyway, I go there, and, uh, and so some of my uh, extended family are still very much working-class, working in factories. And, and I remember having a, a political discussion with, uh, with one of my cousins uh, before an election. And, you know, we had a few drinks and, you know, we were both getting agitated about politics and, uh, you know, and he was kind of banging on the table and, uh, and I thought like, oh my God, he's going to tell me he's going to vote Marine Le Pen, you know, Front National. And no, he was just upset that on the media, people talk about the working class as voting Front National. And he said, you know, my, my mates at, at work, they're not, you know, yeah. they, they, they like the Muslim, they, you know, the immigrants. And, you know, we're not going to vote for Le Pen. Why would we? We know full well that she's not going to defend us. Mm. And I knew, I knew full well that, you know, in France, it's one out of 10 working class people who will vote for the Front National. Yeah. You know, when you take into account the people who don't vote. And yet I still had that fear, even though I knew, I knew, I had the figures, mm-hmm. right? I've studied it. So I... Then imagine someone who doesn't know and who just yeah. sees the headlines, right? We just, we just, you know, buy it just like we buy it. But the, you know, Eastern of London is still very wide mm. and all of these kind of things. And yeah. But is it in in this? How are these things constructed in this kind of at this moment with social media? Those people with louder voices push that image. So, from a Tommy Robinson to a Farage to Kilburn Silk, even when he was on UK. Let's go back. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, like. It's, yeah, it's really difficult, and I'm not. I am. I'm 100. percent I'm. I'm on your guys' wavelength. I. I hate the way the work, particularly the um, working class and white people, are um, positioned and used as political tools. Definitely, but then it, it, there are some experiences within. Mm. There are some parts of your lived experience which are sometimes, as you say, quite hard to wrestle with. Mm. Like, like I, I gave the example last week of my dad being stabbed on the bus by the NF and these were these were these were working class and white people and a lot sometimes a lot of those like physical negotiations of racism rather than structural are with these people so you can see how easy it is for for people to go to retreat to that and I I have to fight that in every day of my life I think because my own family as well would would satisfy um, that group and like, I had to come off Facebook because there were so many people that were from this particular group. I mean, they're not a group like that happened that were working class and have to be white that would say stuff or post stuff that I just could that I couldn't look at anymore because it was so racist. I but, think you're right, and I think it's yeah. not a question of excusing uh, racism in the working class, and there certainly is yeah. you know, racism in the working class that needs to be tackled. But it's not just there, and I think the yes, problem is if we exactly. see that just there and as something that is across the working class, then it becomes problematic. And, it doesn't have and how is it fed? How is it emboldened? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think it's really important. And I think in some ways this also fits with that idea that we've constructed <laughs> racism as the the more extreme or working class because it allows those moments, those really visceral, dangerous, violent yeah. and threatening moments to embody it and structures and institutions to remain invisible, yes. concealed. And I guess in terms of lived experience, I mean, I most of us, our lived experience is not with the elite 
the the like the sort of those who are and I know we're hard saying this as academics, but the, well, no, maybe as academics, so I should say this: we know the structures, institutions, and people who make all knowledge white and male. Yes. So we know those forms of power, and but we don't call them out by their individual exact nature yeah. or name. I mean, in terms of class, I mean, it just I don't. I was talking, um, uh, somebody about this, we were having this idea, about, uh, this discussion about the working class, and I was sort of explaining that when my grandfathers would walk out of a factory, if they were targeted by the far right, it wasn't for recruitment. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? <laughs> they were also on the sharp end of the government policies, which wouldn't allow Jews to get into Canada and escape Nazism. <laughs> um, and it's very... I was trying to explain in this discussion that you have working class people who are at the sharp end of working class racism, mm -hmm. but they're also at the sharp end of media racism, state racism, institutional racism, structural racism. And that actually needs to be contended with when we're talking about working class racism. Yes. Because we're talking also about working class victims of racism. Mm -hmm. So would you see, on it, I was just thinking, would you see how... how Liberal, liberal values or liberal democracy defend themselves is by using these things, these things as a form of social control. So I was thinking, going back to like uh, in my head, I had like Bacon's Rebellion in America. So you have groups that see them have a socio-economic link, but to control one, I use the term white to bring you on side. But you're both the same. You're not gonna. You're poor, and you both need to serve me and serve the function of the state or the elites but I'm going to use one against the other to protect my, my interests. Absolutely. And I think, you know, that's what we saw with Brexit and with, um, with, with the election of Trump as well, in a way. It's like, and what we argue in the book is that, in a way, it's turning, or it's telling the working class that what they care about is race struggle instead of class struggle. Mm. I mean, you know, it's no surprise that it's Trump and Farage, people who have absolutely nothing uh, in favour of, of the working class having, you know, more redistribution, having more power, more say in things, right? It's these people who are leading these movements because these people are trying to divide, divide and concur in a way. And like these people who, like the working class has, has far more in common wherever they're coming from, whatever, whatever their background, whatever their ethnicity or anything like this, than they have with the Farage and the Trumps of the world who are all white men, very wealthy and all these kind of things. So it is this divide and concur that we've seen throughout history. So it's nothing new. And yet we're falling into this over and over again, which is fascinating. It is. No, <laughs> I mean, it's depressing. Or fascinating, I'm sure people think I'm trying to justify the use of it. I'm not. I just, it's just really good to talk it through like um, because it pervades so much of my life. I just want to read, based on what you just said about Raiden as well, an extract from your you guys' article. It's going to be in the episode notes. The assumption that the alienation suffered by the white working class has translated into strong opposition to immigration and diversity has led some commentators to argue that the liberal elite's reaction and general anti-racist attitudes are in fact contempt towards a democratic voice of the ordinary people. Boom. God, I'm, I'm pleased with it. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's, it's, that's a very good point, I think. Yeah, <laughs> it is. It is uh, a really good no, but, it, but it is fascinating, and I think that's, that's where there's a big problem with, with the concept of the white working class, right? Because there are problems in, in working class communities. There, are, there is poverty. Mm -hmm. There is people feeling left behind for very good reasons, as I said before. But it's nothing to do with being white, I think. Yes. And the problem is, as soon as you have a white working that's class... It, that's it, sorry, that's people, it. Yeah. It's nothing to do with being white. Sorry, exactly, on. and then you have, you have people who are, who are going to tap into that and so that they can feed their racism or they can... can feed through their racism and push their racism and they'll say oh it's not because you're working class and it's not because all working class are a problem it's because you're white and and it, whiteness becomes the focus which means that you know you push then racist politics as opposed to to pushing left-wing socialist whatever kind of yeah, other forms of politics and you just lock it as, as it, this is what the working it? class is i mean these are these are elite conservative capitalists they don't want socioeconomic inequality and if anything by making it about about sort of the white race or race itself but not in a way that's anti-racist it's just it's a deflection distraction it's a consolidation of the st of the structures of power they yeah. want they want to maintain i mean it, it's it's um yeah i mean I think there's also something something more to it, and here maybe Aaron will will disagree with me because I'm I'm going to bring a little, little, no more to it. <laughs> little bit of psychoanalytic theory into this, but I find quite quite fascinating about it, and Aaron doesn't like it when I bring <laughs> on, psychoanalytic theory. Uh, but but I think there's there's something that's quite useful about about blaming the working class, just like 
So there's a concept in psychoanalytic theory that's the theft of enjoyment, the fact that you know someone will steal your enjoyment even though that enjoyment doesn't exist. So you could see it as far-right supporters feeling that the immigrant, for example, or, uh, or the ethnic minority is stealing their enjoyment of, of England, of, um, of uh, their working-class neighbourhood, of you know, the East End, of, of whatever, right? But in fact... It was never the case. You know, England is very diverse already without immigration and all these kind of things. People mm-hmm. think different things. So this enjoyment never happened, but you blame it on someone else as opposed to tackling, you know, again, a, a broader systemic issue. And what we, we argued a little bit uh, in, in our work, and I argued a bit more in, in other work, <laughs> was that this theft of enjoyment also applies in a way to kind of the, the, the liberal middle class, which is that... Things are not going well in liberal democracy. People are switching off for very good reasons. It's very hard, I think. Just like it's very hard to defend the EU at the moment. That's why yeah, you know, we remain found it so hard. Yeah, so hard, you know. Yeah. Yes, the, the, the alternative is worse, but, you know, Remain wasn't particularly great, yeah. you know, in terms of racism and all these kind of things in, in particular. And and what we're arguing is that this theft of enjoyment is is felt by, by the liberal middle class that allows them to blame for the troubles in, in liberal society the working class who votes for these kind of crazy people on the far right. And if it wasn't for them, everything would be great. We would all be kind of tolerant. We would all be happy. We would all be like eating at kind of, mm-hmm. you know, um, Chinese restaurants, Indian restaurants and have this kind of full multiculturalism, but everything would be peachy and we wouldn't have racism. But of course we would. And it's not the working class that's to blame. And in a way, it's a deflection, if you want. It kind of mm-hmm. allows us to blame someone else for a systemic racism that we haven't dealt with and we are not fighting against, more importantly. The New Labour slash, you know, London 2012 opening ceremony mm-hmm. version. Yeah, mm-hmm. pretty much. Yeah. That, that was a lot quicker yeah. than what I said. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 yeah, no, I mean, I think, I think it's also, that, that, and that, that comfort in your, in your community, in your heritage, in your what as surroundings this idealized past and this goes to the east end thing i mean there was a documentary a while ago called the the last whites of the east end yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Oh I, it, just, I, it was absolutely absurd i mean there's been migration to essex for example <laughs> yeah. for the east end yeah. for decades i mean i've got family who were in sort of bethnal green in the 1910s and 20s and then you have cable street <laughs> all this kind of thing like i mean there was this was not a white community yeah, yeah. and it was not idea like this idealized utopia where there was we didn't know there was no need for the far right because actually that's part of the construction about it mm-hmm. yeah, uh, that, that yeah. actually the things have gotten so bad that and we it hasn't been managed mm-hmm. the far right is unleashed which again is then used to stigmatize but it's I mean this idealized past is just it's absolutely absurd um, or the idea that, that there's been at a given time when everyone is just comfortable in themselves in their community I, I think I think I think for me it, it's a problem with modernity modernity itself it, it, it's stuck in the, in, the, in the idea that we've had mechanical technical process and all the kind of benefits of that kind of accrued in the 19th early 20th century right but now in the 21st century, we're seeing these inequalities that we thought we got rid of. Well, they were always there, but just become more deeply entrenched. But the ideas are so preeminent of modernity that we're saying, well, we have to, well things have to be, they, they can't be real. We can't be racist because ideas get, it, no, it, but the notion of progress in modernity is always going forward, right? So every day we're getting better, but somehow we're still mired with these things of sexism, racism. And so we either just ignore them and say there's someone else's problem. So it must be the working class because they're dumb, really. They're, they're, they're savages. Yeah. They're, they're lumpen proletariat. Uh-huh. They're, they're nothing. But it can't be the elite who, who have these beautiful so the ideas. Class, That's it? liberalism yeah. 101. You yeah. know? Like the fear of the masses is nothing new, right? Mm-hmm. Or the fact that some people should have a lesser number of votes than others. Mm-hmm. But what's fascinating as well in, in, in all we're talking about here, all the progress we've made you know, over the last 100 years uh, beyond technology, all the progress we've made as a society in terms of welfare support, in terms of women's rights, in terms of all the kind of rights we've accrued, quite often the working class was pushing. It was fighting on yeah. the streets, right? Yes. In all the kind of big revolutions we've had, uh, it was very rarely the elite who was on the streets putting their... And, you know, even, you know, fighting against the National Front, fighting <laughs> against fascism here, the things that are still celebrated today. Uh, we wouldn't talk about them as a working class anymore because the working class are just the bad people who vote for terrible things, which is forcing the elite to implement Brexit or whatever. Well, actually, no, it's not. Not even in terms of numbers. Numbers, yeah. Not, not even in terms of numbers, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. If you play it by their it rules, is, it doesn't stand. That's what it's been. That's literally what's blown my mind. Yeah. I mean, I know I spoke about it a couple of weeks ago on the podcast, but David Cameron doing his, like, book tour thing, and he was still talking about voters in Sunderland. Mm. It's like, it's your <laughs> 
peer group. It's nothing to do with yeah. that. Like, it's just insane. It doesn't even... But I mean, the fact that Northern Ireland and, and uh, Scotland voted against Brexit and yeah. some of the poorest areas in, our, you know, in the yeah, UK, right? It's... Like, but you don't need to even go further into any kind of detail of electoral politics, right? Well, that's yeah. what's insane about it. Anyway, I, the one that... I hear this thing, particularly in the US a lot. Yeah. It's um, the reason we have Trump is because of the education system. Okay. Because people are so racist, are racist because they're uneducated. So that's the liberal construction of yeah, yeah. racism as ideas, right? Yeah. But it's also classist. And you're looking at the sort of the demographics of sort of impoverished neighborhood schools that aren't well resourced and all this kind of stuff. If you if you do the math on that, it means disproportionately African American people are going to be the racists. <laughs> against yeah. Mexicans and African American people and Muslims. Mm-hmm. I mean, it doesn't make any sense. The the the, the education system disproportionately affects the same people who are targeted by the racism mm-hmm. and but it, it's it's a liberal construction of you know i mean i feel like but, you can apply that here as well absolutely but i don't think you hear it as much mm-hmm. because the yeah. way the education system is mapped out and uh grammar schools will get you out <laughs> of racism <laughs> but, yeah but so i'm question. so if it's if, it, if it's a construction, right, and it's these things are constructed, so how do we beat these things? How do we challenge these things? Is, is it about having better ideas? Do we have the battle on the ground of ideas? I feel like more recently as well, I've been particularly frustrated just in like taking it slightly into my research area, which is looking at mixed race and how that gets sort of conflated with notions of progress and post-race um, yeah ideas when you were just talking about the olympic ceremony then like you had like the mixed race family like the 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 middle class liberal family like that that represents like we we've overcome racism all that sort of stuff for me what i've been more concerned about recently particularly in media portrayals and even just how politicians talk and even with my own research participants they'll talk about this notion of mixed race as something which is a way to fight these things that we're talking about, like the union of races mm. means that we have, it's done, it's over, and this is what will get us out of this scary, scary time. And I'm like, this is something that was said in like the 80s, 90s, yeah. as if like, we, so in answer to your question, T, just thinking about my own research, is, is having d- really difficult conversations and saying that is completely factually inaccurate and isn't true like and and giving people the reasons for that and fighting against that notion of progress and race as a sign of progress it seems slightly off topic but i was thinking about that when you were talking that was a huge discourse for and i know it's coming back i think it's aligned somewhat to the idea of as long as we're all neighbors and we live each other we have shared communities we're going to be okay which doesn't doesn't account for two major things one is the fact that people are complaining about integrated communities. Oh, exactly. <laughs> and, yeah, yeah, yeah. and, like, they complain about miscegenation and yeah, 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 yeah. thing. But at the same time, you have this idea, particularly among sort of, even cultural, ra- I mean, particularly cultural racists, we try to have integrated communities, but they won't. Okay. They won't integrate. Yeah. They live in, I mean... So the black Jamaicans, they'll, they'll, have, they'll have families of white people, but, like, the South Asians won't. So they're, like, yeah, so it creates, like, this... Oh, God, yeah, toxic... Yeah, yeah. yeah no, absolutely. And, and it, it, it yeah. places it on the communities who are already the target of the racism and exclusion. Yes. Or, particularly, the idea that, well, they won't learn the language. They keep to themselves. They only work in certain areas. They live in certain areas. They won't talk to us. Their religious practices prevent them from integrating. I mean, we know we know all know the discourses, and it it never accounts for the fact that there might be a whole host of reasons for this. One is racism. <laughs> the other yeah. one is the socioeconomic position and ability to live in certain areas that the people who are saying this live in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think, I mean, that's that's exactly what we we try to do. And I think it's you know it's only it's not a solution, right? It's only mm-hmm. part of part of a, a much bigger battle in a way. But it's 
what we're trying to do is not necessarily look at what's happening at the ground, not, not that it's not important. I think it, it needs to be you know, tackled as a, as a day-to-day basis, but we're trying to kind of look at the, at the broader picture in a way and turn, turn, the, turn it around, if you want, and particularly turn, turn issues of, of classism, racism, sexism, all of that, away from, from the individual case almost and, and back to the systemic, which, again, we're not by no means the, the first people to do it, but what we, we're really kind of demanding in, in the book in particular is, this, is, is accountability. Because the yes. fact that, you know, the people who we still believe that, that some people have more impact on public discourse than others, uh, you know, that, you know, if you, if you well, just, just us two right now on a podcast, right, we're going to be listened by a lot of people who are not going to be able to kind of get back to us about it. And, uh, and you mm-hmm. can see the kind of imbalance here on speech. That's why we don't, we don't believe in the issues of free speech. There's no, such, there's no such thing as free speech if we don't have equal speech and we don't have equal speech, mm-hmm. right? So, for example, you know, all these idiots banging on about free speech and not being able to say that the white race is being downtrodden is, mm-hmm. is, is bullshit, really, mm-hmm. to put it politely, because at the end of the day, the people who are being rationalized have no access to print media, to radio, to all of yeah. that, but all these white supremacists have access to day in, day out. Academic lecture theatres. For example. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, <laughs> and, uh, but I think what we're trying to do really is it's like, it's demand this accountability in a way. The fact that you know the, the people who have access to these public platforms to be to, to, to this uh, kind of almost to shaping public discourse, whether it's politicians, whether it's academics, whether it's and, and so we, we are part of it as well as academics. We have a responsibility and we can't shy away, even though we are benefiting from the system as it is at the moment. And I certainly am, you know, uh, benefiting from the situ- from the system and the oppression onto other people. I need to fight against it. So it's a demand on, of punching up. Right? Rather than punching down, which we've been doing for far too long, and you know, asking the white working class to punch down on the non-white working class, asking uh, the poor to punch down on the more poor, mm-hmm. and so on and so forth. But then, this is, I guess, this is the problem. If it's systemic, where do you start, right? You start at a system. System. So, one of the reasons people find it so easy to blame other people in the day to day is because deindustrialization, all those things are systemic. You can't really see them. You just see them over time. Mm. So you might be, it might start 10 years ago, but you won't see it till 10 years later. And it's that problem we come against. So this is why I, I guess it's for academics like us, it's kind of, I feel at the moment, the battle is at a kind of epistemological, kind of ontological level, like attacking the kind of framework of Western uh-huh. modernity and trying to say that's one point of view and deconstructing that view, that view completely, really. Uh-huh. Starting again, because definitely our discipline is conceived in that colonial imperialist mindset, right? So it's about us trying to pull that apart now and say, okay, there's different points of view and all these kind of all these other views that we we've kind of marginalised and said our our knowledge is not only superior but it's universal. I mean, this is very much a problem that, that we see today about deconstructing the again about the mainstream and hegemony in a way. I think we need to be better on the left with with, with counter hegemonic progress and, mm. and, and 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 projects in a way and creating new imaginaries. But that's that's one of the problems we see very much in the mainstream at the moment, even in the so-called anti-racist mainstream, where they, they always create false, false equivalences, which is that the and populism, I think, is something we look at a lot yeah, for yeah. this you know the idea that the populists are terrible and then in the populists you learn people from like the crazy far right to uh, to like people on the left to like Podemos in Spain or even Corbyn sometimes or mm. Mélenchon in France mm. and I mean there's lots of problems with Mélenchon, Corbyn and all that but mm. equiva- like there's no equivalence here A, you're comparing people who are very much on the far extreme right to people who are on the centre left forgetting but anything that could be beyond that centre-left. Mm-hmm. And that prevents us, I think, from, from really thinking about, about counter-hegemonic projects because mm-hmm. our horizon is liberalism mm-hmm. and yeah. more or less nasty kinds of liberalism rather than actually being like, let's take a good look at liberalism. Is it fit for purpose? If it is and we can fix it, let's do it. Otherwise, let's, let's be bolder. And I, I think, I, I mean, I think people take up different positions in this and different tactics. I think, like, look, there are some people on social media who are playing this out as a, as a culture war on the rights terrain. And I think that may be very engaging and stimulating and sometimes score some points, but it can't be the only place we play this in. At the same time, I think there's two people doing really good work on at the universities about knowledge production. Mm-hmm. But the elite institutions cannot be the only place mm-hmm. we do this. And again, we've said before, and you, you pointed this out, about the electoral level. Yes, that can, we, can, we can't be preoccupied by the electoral level. We have to demand our horizons, but, but, but we have to imagine the horizons within that or through that are extended and different. At the same time, we have to really, really challenge this idea of the white working class as racist. Mm. Because we also have to demand of the left that they don't concede ground to an anti-immigrant, racist, xenophobic, xenoracist 
politics. Because actually, if no parties, if the price of socialism is accepting racism, then it's not mm-hmm. socialism and it's not a future. Mm-hmm. We have to make sure that, that we demand of the parties and the movements that we may be aligned with or we think can make change. Mm-hmm. And I think the same can be said about about feminism as well. You know, if the mm-hmm. price of feminism is to be racist we'll try, uh, and yeah. to force Muslim women to remove their hijabs, then I don't think that's feminism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. No, I was going to say, so it, <laughs> it seems like going beyond ideas, right? To go beyond what we have traditionally as ideas, I find that modernity, it, it feels comfortable. Institutions feel comfortable with the ideas because they, they promote a certain group or class interest. And so you could be upper middle class and life's good right yeah life's good so i don't really want to challenge these things in fact i'll i would say i'm doing my bit so they might recycle they might have a few black friends they, uh, might, they might have black kids you know and it's, it's, that might, that, that's a justification yeah. of yeah the system well i've had my yeah i've done this so and i'm not racist and like i said and when you go to schools and schools reinforce that image and it's it's difficult to have those conversations without... We are all sitting in this room and we have all engaged at a certain level on these issues. Joe Bloggs in the street, it's hard to have these conversations because I I try to approach, I try to approach it with nuance, but it quickly descends into chaos. Yeah. So I, I don't I don't know. I mean, it's weird with the institutional level because actually I, like I work at UEL. Yeah. My student body are like... You've got one of the most... Ethically diverse student body. Yeah, it's like uh, high 70%. um, And working class. Yeah. And local and dealing with all the challenges that that comes with. Mm -hmm. Um, So in a sense that, that for me, that changes my perspective on elite knowledge production and stuff like that. Mm. Um, But it has, and I think sometimes we're, you know, I, I find it's a very different experience when people are debating about, like, the, the theory, the canon of social theory. Mm-hmm. And that's not what we're necessarily teaching at UEL. Do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? So, like, it's, there's, we also have to understand the, the dynamics and the, the different, rela- different relations of power within these institutions. And I think we have to engage with them. Um, and the rate, the different forms of racism and classism, and the different relations between these that that occur, because I just don't think it's all the canon. <laughs> mm. No, I, I think you're right. Yeah, I think you're right. Contingency, I think, is is the thing I'd like to finish on really, because I think to me this is something that has become just incredibly, incredibly important. I mean, what what I think both of us have tried really hard to do in our work. Uh, is, is not to be prescriptive in many ways. I mean, we have our opinions about what a better society could look like and what it could be, but I don't think this is what we need at this stage. Um, we're, we're at a particular moment of, in time where we, we're just really lacking imagination in many ways. And I think if we could hammer out the fact that the way things are now are completely contingent, that there's no reason things have to be this way, that there's no reason that things have to be uh, have to be classist, have to be racist, that there, there, needs, there needs to be homelessness, that there needs to be this and that, but all of this is, is pretty much constructed, that there's no necessity for it to be this way um, I think I think is where we should start because then that would prevent us from falling into the traps we've been talking about of the left feeling that they need to talk to the racists uh, to necessarily get elected you know I mean but I still, I'm still so scarred by, by, by that Ed Miliband um, <laughs> mug uh, you know uh, saying that immigration uh, like what was it Labour is tough on immigration or something like that <laughs> outrageous <laughs> Uh, and anyway, so I think I think we need to kind of this contingency shows that we don't have to pander to racist. No one is making the positive case for yeah. immigration. Why not just do it? But Why not just I, do it? I don't understand. Just do it. Just make the case. It's really straightforward. And the only time I, I see the case being made, it's economic yeah. contribution. It's it's already yeah, in, in this neoliberal or intellectual cons- contribution. Yeah, yeah. I mean, extent. there's there's no yeah. notion that people. People should have a right to move and settle and have lives and form relationships and just be. Mm. I mean, and I think, but I think that's something fascinating. And you, you talked about your students. My students are complete opposite to uh, to Aaron's. Um, yeah. So I'm, yeah, I'm at Bath University, 
And, uh, and for my students, when I talk about this, about immigration, it's fascinating. And I say, you know, when you go on your year abroad, like, are you, are you an immigrant or am I an immigrant here? And it's like, well, no, of course I'm not. You know, I'm an expat, right? <laughs> and they're expats as well. Uh, yeah. And so, you know, then we talk about immigration and what it means to people. And there's some fascinating research that's been done on that to show that when people think about immigration, you know, in all these idiotic polls about like, you know, are you concerned about immigration? When people think about immigrants, when they're asked after the poll is done, uh, they don't think about someone like me. No. You know, of course, they think about immigration in a very negative way. Mm. Uh, and same when they think about Muslim people, they think about about Muslim people as, you know, equal terrorism, pretty much, and all these things. So. Although in the context of Brexit, they do think about it. Like, <laughs> they do think about it. <laughs> yes. More and more. Yeah. I was just thinking of your, I mean, what you said to, when you said about contingency. So I thought like modernity has a response to that. So if you if everything's constructed and if we just do, we can just tear it down. The response by liberalism is like John Rawls' response in the theory of your justice. Like, we would arrive at the society anyway because this is the best type of society to have if you were in under a veil of ignorance. He, he was like, so they have that response all around. So if you tear away all the artifice and you had nothing, although we know it's not true, this is this is the liberal but, response. That's right? the point. You can't, you can't. And I think the way we look at contingency is not under a veil of ignorance because it's impossible to be under <laughs> a veil of ignorance. <laughs> we live in societies which are capitalistic, which already have various power structures, which are which are oppressing people, which are propping up people unfairly with privilege and so on and so forth. <laughs> so I think, you know, the whole point of a veil of ignorance, oh, it's lovely, right? I mean, yeah, it's so great, right? Let's put a veil yeah. of ignorance on our face, except in France because you can't wear a veil. That's, that's another story. But, uh, but, you know, it's, yeah. I, mean, I, don't, I don't think it stands any... And that's why, you know, it's been so popular with liberals because it makes them feel good about yeah. themselves. But, but I don't think it works. And I think we need... We, contingency is, is crucial to me, but it needs to be uh, allied with power structures, with, with oppression uh, mm-hmm. and with privilege, I think. And if we don't understand that, then, yeah, contingency can, can fall into some kind of pointless discussions, yeah. Also why they hate the idea of intersectionality. Yeah. <laughs> oh, good place to end there, yeah. <laughs> we'll start another podcast. Yes, right oh, thank you so much, both of you, that was Thanks, amazing. Like, I feel like I've still got so many questions that we're going to have to end there. Thank you so much, thank you listeners, thank you to our Patreon supporters, we'll have another episode for you coming up, we'll see you next week. Bye. You've been listening to Surviving Society with Chantal and Tiso. Please like, rate and subscribe you can also find more of us on twitter and instagram